Everything is awful. <laughs> Welcome back to Hacker Hangouts on another Saturday morning. Uh, and it's that time of year. It's that time of year where we come together, we celebrate uh, peace on earth, and we acknowledge together in front of everyone that everything is broken forever. Everything is the worst. Abandoned computers return to monkey. That is, I think, that's what the season is yep. all about. Stealing I mean, my lines. I know I am because it was just like one of the most my favorite rant we have ever had on this channel. I apologize for my voice because I am sick yet again because I have two daughters who are walking petri dishes and this time of year is awesome. Uh, but I I'm I'm gonna be getting back to videos hopefully on my main channel which I'm I'm actually weirdly weirdly really really excited about. Uh, and it's it's been fun. But today. Uh, we have we have troubling news. Gowry dropped into a ch our chat, which was I have been stolen. Uh, I have been I don't know if you'd call it cyber squatted. I have been I have been nabbed and someone has now run off with my identity. And I think the weirdest part about this and let me just drag this with new technology. We'll see if I can just drag it. Oh, my gosh. I can just drag a screen right over the top of our faces here. I'll drop it right down here. Gowry sharing out his his screen. There is new TLDs coming out. Oh gosh, I feel like all the time. Those are like the .com, .net, .org. But then there is like .dev, .app, .me. And one of them is .security. And I'm like, oh, this would be so cool. Even for our company, I was like, it would be cool because we're Tuic Security Group to have Tuic.security. I even like my main, my domain, since it's Alex Chevrolet, I am so proud of my domain because it's Chevrolet. It's C-H-A-V-E-R. I dot at so my email oh, could be nice. like just my name which is awesome so we looked into security in security domains since whoever owns the tld can set their own pricing for it dot security is like two thousand dollars a year like it's not an insignificant amount of money so i find it hilarious that someone i probably shouldn't leave this up here mainly because i feel like we're like not a sponsor i don't know who these people are they could be they could be terrorists don't I, they, they're probably they're, terrible. They're probably not. Let's be clear. <laughs> they're probably not. Yeah, like you don't want to get sued. No, but we don't know who Silk Security is. However, we discovered there is a Silk dot Security website, and I said, Silk, is this you? Someone appears to have stolen you. <laughs> it's so it's so funny too because like so when we I'm gonna I'm gonna pull your I'm gonna hide this from the screen for a second. When we started Tuic Security Group, uh, me and my business partner had lots of discussions, like which was like, effectively, we need to start a company. What what should the name be? And we went back and forth with a couple different names. And finally, I got frustrated. I threw my hands up and I said, like, this is so stupid. Stop saying we I don't want any word which has anything to do with any type of security because you know, lock, hawk. Uh, you know, door, like any cyber, 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 like any word you come up with, there is a security boutique company. You can just like go into your browser, start typing in random URLs. Actually, don't do that. But you can come up with any name and there's a security company for it. So finally, my business partner came up with such a great and here's like a piece of nugget because I think our clients have asked this and it's not necessarily a, a kept secret. We just made up a word. Tuic security is actually a made up word off of something so ridiculous because we didn't, we wanted to own the domain and I wanted to find a domain because like silk security, like that's hilarious that they exist in ours. Like here's the piece of trivia was 
Uh, my business partner was a professional hockey player, which was crazy. It's just crazy to me because he looks like it too. He's like this huge dude. And there's the boot. And again, this is Alex going like, woo, go sports. There's the boot. There's the blade. And then there's that little piece that connects both of them, which is made by a company called Tuke, which is T-U-U-K. And their logo kind of looks like Tuick. And when he pitched it, he was like, what do you think about Tuick? And I was like, that sounds very Norrisy, like a, you know, like that we're about to like raid the things and with beard and everything like that. I'm like, you know what? Let's go. Let's embrace it. And that's what we did because we couldn't do silk security. It was already taken. That was that was originally the goal. And that's how the story comes back uh, around. Also, I, I gotta love like just pointing out if you bring up the the website back up, you gotta love the logo designs too because as soon as I looked at this, I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely a, a group of cyberpunk folk because this looks suspiciously like the Ghost in the Shell guy, <laughs> right? See it. I'm pretty sure that's what their logo is, basically. So that's pretty, pretty on awesome. point. That's how that's how you know they're serious. That's that how is. you know they're serious. I immediately like these people. I will back them, obviously, not even knowing so, anything about them. Let's get to the spicy topics, which is that everything's broken forever, always the end. Um, there's been a, a number of reports this this week, the past two weeks, whatever the case is. Um, of just uh, things amazing that vulnerabilities. Never, yeah, like amazing vulnerabilities. The, this first one, if you were to bring up the the, so this first one is just kind of like everyone's got a face palm at this. Phylum detects ongoing typo squat ransomware campaign in PyPy and NPM. So first of all, uh, of course this is a thing. I've never really thought about this, but I that's because I don't come up with ways to be the most evil person on the internet every day. I would have eventually come up with, instead of just typo-squatting domains, why don't we typo-squat Pynum or like a major Python packages and then get them upstreamed, right? Yeah. Like, I, I can't think of anything more evil than that. So the kicker with I mean, these, though, is... This type of vulnerability, like where this one is like out flat typo squatting, what we find very, very consistently, and I know I am, I totally have done, I've never done this with my own domains, is you, it's called uh, like subdomain hijacking. So you set up a C name, you set up a subdomain, which points to like, let's say you have, you have the new silk security idea. You want to spin up a website on WP Engine. Now your domain is going to cost you like 10 bucks. You want to go host on, or, or you buy a server on DigitalOcean, LightSail, like insert, whatever. You need to point a subdomain to that IP address. Now, if you spin it up on DigitalOcean, the IP address goes away and you never remove the subdomain. It's rare that someone's going to be able to nab that IP address in a targeted attack. WP Engine or any of these other services, Freshdesk, ServiceNow, like any of these major companies, you set up the subdomain and then if you abandon that product, and you never get rid of the subdomain, it allows me to go to that vendor, sign up, and then where you go through the domain registration, you register with the domain that's already pointing there. This is why they added like text records and whatnot to verify it. But it's it's remarkably common. I find it fascinating though with this attack that they're targeting NPM and package managers because you've heard my rant. I love NPM because it's like the the hippie love fest of JavaScript, but because anyone can put code in, but at the same time is like there, there are STDs just sitting there, which you can catch. And this is one of those. And, 
And so this is the thing is people are like, oh, we need to shut down this vulnerability. What vulnerability? This is a feature, not a bug, right? <laughs> All they're doing is putting upstream packages in into PyPy and NPM. It's a feature. You can put anything up there, right? This is the problem with open source and third-party packages. You know, like, I don't know, I, I brought up NumPy as an example, but pick your favorite, you know, uh, the scikit or something scikit learn or something like that i could do like scl kit learn and then have a fork of scikit learn that just has a back door in it and you would never know right well, and then i could integrate that into some other product that people download they would go in and be like oh it's scikit learn okay cool we're good to go right like this is i mean this but is where, no, like you just can't know this is one of those ones that like you're taking the lazy attack. Well, I would say lazy in the fact of like you're you're cloning the website, you're you're cloning a domain, and then you're throwing an npm. Like you want to take a long a long term approach. Like look at what happened with Faker. Like legitimately valuable package everyone uses, and then you're like, eh, I'm gonna go help this project out. I'll become a contributor, and then when the project or bad example with Faker, maybe like when you go grab a package that everyone relies on. And then you become a contributor and you're able to merge your own pull requests. All of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, cool. I can and merge critical egregious vulnerability within JavaScript. Like and launch ransomware across the globe with one <laughs> upstream patch, right? And I mean, but that's basically what's happening in, in this is that uh uh you know bad actors are uploading either forks or just straight ransomware as packages into into these things. And you know, you accidentally do an import or a download, you know, SCL kit learn or whatever, and boom, you're pwned. At your own request, there's no way for you to stop it because you type the words, download this, and then you imported the package, right? Like there's no there's no vulnerability close there. Well, I, was, here, I was having this here. conversation with a buddy of mine last night. I was like, people don't realize the utter house of cards that the internet is because you know, you can look at this as, oh, that's user land stuff. We can try and put things in place. But this is the same problem you have with, the, you know, Linux kernel and other open source uh, uh, areas. Just because it's open doesn't mean it's good. Well, like, to, to compound the problem fat, uh, stronger, too, is like you can you're, you're saying, oh, ransomware or things like that. That could be detected with some sort of like scanning and things like that. But like you're running JavaScript. So like, things like stealing cookies and things like that, like. That that is a feature. JavaScript, if you're running a SPA application, a single page application or anything like that, it needs to access the cookie. Like by design, it needs to do it. So that means anything you load under NPM is going to be able to access that as well. And you just like siphon off user user credentials and toss them to another website. Yeah, it's 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 a mess. But this one is not as big of a vulnerability. And I don't know which one you have on your list yet, next, but ping. Please say you have the free BSD ping one. Let me pull this back. Oh, on. I don't have the, the article up. Do you have it up? I do not have it up. Go ahead. I'll, I'll kick your screen off so no one can see your search history because I know that's definitely. I did private. see that one. That one's, that one's hilarious. Yeah, December 5th. Okay, I got it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's this ping of death. It wasn't, it wasn't a ping of death. That's the thing is I had this. I think we started discussion, discussing it. Unless it's changed, which it may have changed since I saw it last. Ping of death was a DOS attack. Like you, you ping it and it eventually just like collapses and DOS is the server. 
This one, someone brought it to remote code execution. From yeah, that's pain. awesome. It's the same vulnerability. Yeah, that's that's utterly insane. Can you make your screen bigger so that one will actually show up? Is it is utterly insane to me that there is an ICMP vulnerability which results in full code execution. Like, um, I'm not surprised by this at all. I, I, I'm, I'm being completely sincere, right? Like we, we all know about the ping of death that has affected all the way as far back as Windows 95. It's a little surprising for it to show up in FreeBSD of all places mm -hmm. with how locked down FreeSB tends, uh, FreeBSD tends to be. But again, not even remotely surprised because it, the more you learn how software gets written, the more you learn how software gets maintained, the more you learn just about software in general, you go, oh, right, somebody had to drive, uh, you know, write that ping driver. It didn't just manifest itself. It probably got written in the early 90s and worked, and no one's touched it since then, or at least hasn't touched it since IPv6. And yeah, these things just get added. And, and, and this is kind of an interesting, this is kind of an interesting one for me because people think uh, when you're getting into security and you want to go fuzzing something and you want to go look for binary exploitation uh, things, that there's no point in going after these old services because they've been hammered on, they've been looked at and all these things. It's a statistics it's open source. game, guys. It's been reviewed, It's open right? source, right? It's been reviewed. It's all these things. It's a I'm statistics sorry, game, guys. Yeah, it's a statistics game, right? Like, even though these services have been looked at for a really long time, maybe the people that were fuzzing them just didn't get lucky, right? Well, and I, I'd argue this, though. Like, with many of these services, it's this is like where they go, oh, AI and all that. It's, it's, it's a current jobs. Like, I, I laugh because with fuzzing, at least when I look at, like, web application and things like that, Fuzzing is, is is very wonderful, but it suffers from the exact same problem all DAS tools do, like dynamic application security testers or tools, which f go through the application, find a parameter, and then go through this giant list of uh, inputs that's going to try on each one and then check the response. If you have a parameter, you could just add to your application or the URL and you say, is admin equals yes, not true. You know, is admin equals yes or affirmative, it won't find it because it's going to check. It might add, is admin true? It may add, is admin false? It's not going to add, is admin affirmative and then check it. And even if it did do that, it's not going to immediately have the context to go, oh yeah, they're an admin now. How that works with something like this though is like fuzzing in general, you still have to point it at a specific place and then be able to catch it. And this is why like, the most advanced exploits in the world come down to like one line of code. Look at Sony hack. That was the one I always ran to. I was like, it was SQL injection. It was something so many people could have found, but it was in this like really weird nuanced location that no one had tested before. So, so, but so here's the fun part. Like I'm reading the article and I'm like, I'll bet it's something like this. And it, it turned out to be uh, that this is, this is like basic level buffer overflow stuff, right? So what's happening here? is uh, as the packets come in, uh, it, it does a copy of the packet from one place to another, and it allocates memory based on the size of an ICMP packet. Well, uh, what is it? Option, yeah, IP header, including the IP headers. That copy, when it allocates the buffer, didn't take into account that there could be option headers present in the IP, uh, in the IP header. And so it ends up overflowing up to 40 bytes, which this is like, 
this is like baby's first buffer overflow type stuff, <laughs> right? Like when you go through a security, like a, a reverse engineering and a software security class, this is whenever you copy data from one place to another and you're allocating things, don't believe what the packet tells you, only believe what the actual size of the thing that you're handling is, right? Um, so, so validate sizes. I have a question for you then. You, because you're saying this is like baby's first buffer overflow. How often is it when you, if you're looking for vulnerabilities or just like back in your career that you have found a vulnerability, you're like, this was an, a percentage wise, general percentage, general swag. How many of them are, we'll say like bouncing a laser off a plate on the moon to capture the response, like something super advanced versus baby's first buffer overflow. Um, as time, it depends on what you're looking at. Right. So like, IoT devices, there's baby's buffer overflow everywhere because people just write stuff to get it to work and they don't care. They can just hit the reset button. As as operating systems have become more mature over time, it tends to become bouncing a laser off the moon doing, you know, like heap grooming and, and stuff like that. So it both, right? Like but it depends on what you're looking speaking, at. I mean, I guess it depends on what you're looking at in your career, which would be very specific. I know to you, how many of them do you think of, of the vulnerabilities that you found? I know you're not like a bug hunter or whatnot, fall into the easy category versus the hard. Well, category. I want to, I want to be clear about something in my entire career. I have never found a zero day vulnerability, right? Like that is that, that is, I have never, uh, we've had this discussion. I mm -hmm. have never, unless it's software that I'm writing, right? In which case mm -hmm. every bug I find is a zero day. <laughs> Well, that's the question, but go on. Yeah, no, but, you know, so in terms of like actually doing vulnerability research against software that isn't my software, um, I, I've never actually done that work. I've mostly written tools to help engage in that work to help find and patch vulnerabilities, but there's always somebody one, uh, one step uh, in front of me. And I'll say... Like th what I was trying to say was that over time, the number of babies first buffer overflows has gone down. Doesn't mean they've gone away. I would probably say the majority of uh, vulnerabilities are still very much in that classification. Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, it, this is like we've had this discussion on, buffer, uh, on uh, zero days where I would argue that every vulnerability I find is a zero day. I mean, on some level, because I'm testing all custom software for clients and things like that. So every vulnerability I find is a zero day. The thing which yeah. becomes like really squishy in that is when it comes to like, I found a cross-site scripting vulnerability. Well, cross-site scripting has been seen a zillion times. It's not a new type of vulnerability. It's a new injection of this. It's just a different permutation of it. So I don't know. The term gets a little wonky i'll say for web security but and I don't, I don't really like the term zero day in general i would say like yeah the the term there needs to get defined a little bit more we need to but, reclaim it we need to make it mean something else yeah i mean like, it's like many acronyms in our industry i feel like anytime you you say a word too many times it loses all meaning but when um go on go ahead we'll just have awkward oh, i didn't have anything oh yeah, okay, awkward so, silence one of the, do you have another vulnerability to pull up? Because the other place yeah, I want This was one that you okay. brought up, I think, which was the code execution in Spinago extended negotiation security. Was that you or was that somebody from our Discord? Shameless plug. I, 
that post. I think it that. was someone in our Discord, and I had didn't have a chance to look at this one too. No, that was you. You posted it. Oh, was it? Maybe it yeah. was one I looked at. It's and this is just a probably a, a an example of it. I had to look at, at it a little bit more, but that these things come out all the time. It's another critical. Vo- oh, this is like the this was the another eternal blue just in everything like that's kind of what i interpreted it as it's the same again glanced at it don't hold me to this one is it's the same problem that existed in which allowed eternal blue within smb what but this affects any services wrapped around that exact same uh smp go secure negotiation mechanism which includes services like you know, the, the Kerberos listener and uh, all, the, all the other Windows listeners. Again, this one kind of dropped. I looked at it, but I think it's kind of like most things when they first drop, because everyone wants to get the news out. Uh, it ha- it wasn't fully flushed when I read it. It's like, okay. this is three in the past week. And I'm going to ask, I have to ask the question, which is at a certain point, and I mean this, like Windows vulnerabilities aside, and operating system vulnerability aside, where like everything is now vulnerable to remote code execution. Like I'll put those ones over here. Those need to get continued to patch. But like when, if you're looking at your software, do we really need to even fix these things? And I mean that like sincerely. Do like is there an option where you go, you know what? Screw it. We're not fixing anything anymore. Like I mean, so from a I'll just say from an engineering standpoint, every one of these bugs is an insta- is a source of instability. So in order to increase reliability of your services, yes, you should patch these things. <laughs> but that's that's the question though. It's like for certain pieces of software, I feel like a balance needs to be maintained where you go, if we patch this, yeah, sure, we're vulnerable to this medium risk thing. Like someone could steal credentials if they get in, if they have a login credential. But in order to patch this, we will have to take down the piece of software or we'll have to we'll have to patch it, which creates additional instability. And maybe maybe this is a question even comes down simpler to this. And because I think this is where the industry is gone, which is if I maintain some microservice, I need to maintain it. I need to patch it. Like if I'm inside a big organization, I have multiple apps I need to maintain. If if I get this one working, I set it over here, it's working, I let go of it for six months, a year. Just by the fact that it exists, it's going to become insecure. If packages go out of date, vulnerabilities like this ICMP, the server needs to be maintained. Now, we've we fixed the server being maintained by things like Docker and Kubernetes and all these other things. We don't have to maintain servers. Well, we do, but in a, in a more obscure way. At a certain point, we just go, you know what? The cost of paying an engineer to look at this two-year-old service is too much. Screw it. Let's drop the service and go find a third party we can trust to maintain this thing for us. And it feels like the industry is moving from this, we're going to maintain all of our own services, to, eh, let's just use every third party under the sun and shift the security to them. Because what will happen then is if it gets hacked, it's shame on them, not shame on us. Do you think, I feel like there's a movement happening, or is that all in my own head? Um, Many things are in my own head. I th- like with most things. I think it's somewhere in between. I don't have a whole lot to add to that, but I, because I largely have the same opinion as you. Like, I, I, I do think 
I do think there's some level of movement happening to accepting this as the reality of the situation and just kind of not doing anything about it, which is like, it's funny because Silk and I always joke and on our discord, we always pass some of these articles around and I'm just like, Oh, everything's broken again. It must be Tuesday. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, but as a question then to move it because where it's like, Oh, everything's broken. But do you find that many companies are going, no, we don't want to maintain these things. Like these things that oh, someone sure. else has figured it out. We're going to just pull a third party service in. And it's I, not so that, it, that third party is going to be more secure. It's that it's it just shifts the blame over to them. It doesn't just shift the blame over to them. It's a cost. It's a cost savings measure, right? As a business owner, you should understand this. It's like why reinvent the wheel when somebody's already invented the wheel. The wheel might be triangular, but it does work. <laughs> and it was oh. never intended to be the used in the way you're intending to use it but that's how software works we're just gonna do the thing with you know a triangular wheel because why pay an engineer to to do it right like it, i think it that's does a reality feel, though like with so many of the platforms as a service coming out like you know amplify firebase uh gosh what's the other one which comes to my mind i'll remember it later if every one of these platforms, software, I feel like the software industry is exploding where there's billions of pieces of software in, in the effort to create a minimal viable product, usually that minimal viable product pulls in as many third parties as it can. So go yeah. into a few comments. Well, I don't know if I agree with that, but go ahead. Let's move to comments. No, let's, let's talk about it and then I'll jump to comments. Um, I, you know, I have even re-implemented things like printf, right? Just because we didn't want to pull in. Well, yeah. So in, in environments where libc was not allowed to be used, I have had to re-implement printf. Or we pulled in a third-party package that did that for us. We ended up pulling in a third-party package for that, which we know that there's probably bugs in. But again, like where these things get deployed doesn't really matter. Um, like closed loop systems and things like mm -hmm. that stuff that doesn't have access to the the internet and i think that's where there's this giant trap because you can't really know the context within which certain software this kind of goes back to what you're saying you can't really know the context within which certain packages were written so a developer may have legitimately been like well i'm not intending to run this on the internet so screw it i'll just have a ton of vulnerabilities that i don't feel like fixing right now and then they go well i'll post it on github and then someone goes cool let's spin up a web app that interacts with that and then boom there you have it you know or, the sony the, the sony hack happens the right? other one which i laugh at is immediately i go to when we were looking at um the the smart grid how that was going to get connected and we actually like the first smart grid devices, again, this is all public at this point. So like when I was working at General Electric, we were going, how do we plug in someone's meter, electrical meter on the outside of their house into the control network? And I remember it so vividly. We had a giant whiteboard in the room and he's going through the process and he's like, oh, so here's the internet. Here's a firewall. Here's the DMZ. Here's a firewall. Here's this network. Here's this network. This then has an air gap over to this, this firewall, then there's this. You have to use a bastion host to jump over to this. It was like this huge thing. And then he takes a line from the control network and draws it across all above all the security and goes to the internet. It's like, and then that's going to connect to their home. And we're just like, so the millions of dollars of security you have all here, we're just bypassing all of that. He's like, yeah, we need to figure out how to make that secure. 
and I think back to your security <laughs> package and go, all of, everything in the entire control network was built to be in the control network, to be completely closed loop. So like when you connected, this is where it just blossomed into like yep. fuzzing protocols and things like that. Like you could send a ping, like a val a valid ICMP packet to one of these devices, and they just go completely offline because the the network I, stack would just completely crash. One of my favorite stories about the the smart grid thing is, yeah, I want to say this is almost a decade ago now. Now it was when I was still working at a government contractor, just as I was starting to work there. There was an intern project where people had acquired a bunch of smart grid devices, and uh, most of us were. Uh, CS people, not engineering people, not hardware people. We we had like this giant box of old smart grid devices or like ones that were being discarded. We bought off eBay or whatever to look at to see if we could pull the firmware off. But every time we plugged one in, uh, a capacitor would blow up. So we released the magic blue smoke from about 40 of them before we decided we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and we never successfully dumped. I just, yeah. Uh, yeah, things, it was uh, it stupid was so mistakes you you make in learning how to do some of this stuff. It is so funny because I remember like when we started testing those things, it was like, how do we know if it fails? Like legitimately, like, it was one of these things. It's like we put a network on. interface. How do you know it turns off? So we had to come up with this whole mechanism of like, how do we know it broke? And we so we would like some of them we would just have them like legitimately do a square wave of five volts, and we'd hook like an LED, yeah. so it just blinks. You'd have this like. $50,000 piece of equipment and make it just blink an LED. Like, it was yep. just, like, so funny to me. All right, uh, jump into comments. Questions. Uh, Squiddy writes, write it in Rust and then say, it's secure because the language is perfect. Yep, that's pretty much exactly how it goes. Rust is perfect, right? Yeah, the perfect part about Rust is that it's impossible to get anything to compile. Therefore, you can't run software. Therefore, it can never break. Perfect. Uh, haha, yes, the cloud. Look at all those AWS services. I do feel uh, AWS has a service for everything, which I do enjoy. The thing which I became, gave me, just disillusioned me to the entire thing is when I tried to use in, uh, Cognito. That was their like identity access, identity access management solution for like Amplify. They needed, they needed Cognito in order to uh, effectively have this platform as a service. That thing was built by like one dude who then later left the company and they're like, oh, well, we need to maintain this. Well, let's just like let it sit there for a while and then maybe someone will take it on. And there was like fundamental things it didn't have where it was like, there was no way to back up users. Like if, if, you, if someone could just click one button without confirmation and just hose your entire user database with no backup, like it has made me realize that AWS services, when they come out, when they're like, oh, yeah, they're not stable. And you're like, yeah, they're not stable, but they're on AWS. I can trust them. Yeah. It's made me just completely <laughs> lose all like belief that well, these things are ready for production. I was going to say that's mostly because just about anyone can get uh, their own service. Well, not anyone. Like You have to go through a whole validation process with AWS services themselves to get your own service published up there. Because they do like third-party um, services and wrappers around VMs and, and uh, containers mm -hmm. and things like that that you can rent. And then the, the third party gets a, a cut of whenever someone uses those things. Right? Yeah, you're talking so about like, AMI is or AMI is? 
I'm talking yeah. about Cognito was their service. That was an AWS service. Oh, you're talking about service. actual AWS This was an actual AWS service. This was not like, this was like Dynamo or EC2. This was Cognito, their like platform not, as a service I, 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 IDM. Yeah, I would, I would not expect one of their services to blow up my stuff. Like that's- it was, it was just amazing to me. It was like fundamental things it didn't have. Like again, like backing up your users didn't exist. And we talk about vendor lock-in, like you can't move users. Your only option would be to spin up something else and say, okay, everyone just like re-sign up over there. Like if you want to stay in our service, just go re-sign up. Like it's ridiculous. That's insane. Right. Gator, who I'm glad. Hi, Gator. We are just shifting, uh, you are just shifting the responsibility to a third party than buying cyber insurance. The pendulum is swinging and it will come back to self-host in a few years. I think... Yes. I, so this is my opinion. One, I think buying cyber insurance is like one of those things. It's a requirement for contracts. Like our company, for instance, we have to maintain general liability. We need to maintain uh, errors and emissions policy, like these re exorbitant policies for our clients. Cyber insurance. And as an owner of the company who has reviewed these with the company selling it, I legitimately have zero idea, like for us, how these things would come into play if something happened. And it that sounds weird, but if you think about what we're doing, we're breaking into their network. We have contracts in place to like allow us to do this. We do it in QA and things like that. But for like cyber liability, so I I, I think like most insurance is to satiate the contracts because they need to be there. But I don't think for me it doesn't play into whether or not you self-host or not. I think what plays into whether you self-host or not simply has to do is, do I want to maintain this thing long-term and do I want to profit off of this thing? And does their profitability, how they charge for it, yeah. align with how I'm going to charge for it? I, I have this I have this argument back and forth with a couple of buddies of mine. This, you know, Sometimes one of them will say, like, if you have any kind of on-prem thing, then you're stupid. You should do everything in the cloud. But I don't think those people realize how much cloud services cost now. It used to be absurdly cheap like absurdly cheap and that's how they got market share but if you actually go look at what it costs to like run a 24 7 service in aws or run uh, all of your infrastructure in aws instead of having on-prem uh you know racks it's it's insane like the same server will cost you four five x what the server itself costs and if you need you know, 10 of them at that point, you're probably better off buying it and paying someone to maintain them, right? Like there, mm -hmm. there's legitimate financial reasons to have on-prem uh, hardware as opposed to just doing everything in the cloud. Now, I think when you're a small shop of like two to five people, you can probably just use, you, you don't need a 24 seven. Yeah, it's, it is. I will say that even with your comment though, like AWS, their prices year after year have gone down. Like they have considerably gone down year after year, but it's still stupidly expensive yep. because we've started relying on like originally I wanted to run a server. Okay, cool. Grab EC2, throw it up. You're like, oh, but there's this whole IDM they also offer. That would be nice. Ooh, I'd also like the serverless capabilities. Oh, I also need full text search. So I need Algolia or whatever full text search you use. And like Can I just say that the phrase serverless instances triggers me to no end. Like I, 
I, I hate it. I hate it because it doesn't, that's not what that word means. <laughs> I mean, I get, I actually do understand your frustration with it, but there is serve like we have, you have three layers. Again, I'll, obviously there's ones in between. You have either I'm running EC2, I'm running a server, I'm running a Docker container on clusters, and that Docker container is going to either stay open or it's going to close. And then I have serverless Lambda in functions, Azure functions, whatever you want to call them, which just like run and then die. For me, I yeah, it's kind of like saying the cloud is just someone else's system. I get it. I I don't know if it I should, just look, should it look, trigger you. I call call me a graybeard, whatever you want to say. In my day, things in the computer realm explained themselves by the name of the thing. Break point. It is the point at which something breaks execution. Serverless. The well, what do you do with a serverless thing? Well, you run code on someone else's computer. <laughs> the word doesn't well, explain the thing name well, it something if, else if you want to make it even worse though serverless is both a oh god i want to say noun and a verb but that's not right serverless is both a proper noun because there is a company which is oh, serverless it's the serverless framework and like this now becomes like the cyber 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 thing is you can have you can use the serverless framework on the serverless platform to run serverless functions on serverless providers to do serverless things and then delete, like <laughs> delete computers return to monkey God, and we've gone that too was far. and then serverless supports yaml so you can write a serverless yaml like legitimately we have now used this as has the modifier to so many things because there's a company named serverless and it has, I, I do it. think we need a new term to describe it. And that's why people just call like, even if it's not, even if they're not using AWS, they often call them just Lambda functions. So people at least know yeah. what you're talking about. Also, I, I mean, so I've never interacted with um, Lambda instances or Lambda functions or whatever which like in computer science, Lambda has a very specific meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I hear like, oh, you just use a Lambda function, I'm like, oh, oh hold on. Are we, are we going back to like sophomore year of college here for a second? And I need to, you know, dig out that portion of my brain or did someone bastardize yet another word that I have to fix, right? Like it and also triggers me. You also have to think about it this way. The, this naming thing at AWS doesn't happen in a bubble. It's not like some like, yeah. it's not like hacker tools that happen. And it's like Medusa, not MedUSA for anyone interested, <laughs> uh, is it's not like it happens in a bubble in your basement. Like this was pitched to a marketing department and people in the area and someone had to raise their hand and say like, Lambda already has a meeting. Do we want to use that? And they're like, yeah, we already started on the brand name for it. We're going to keep it. Like, yeah, sad, sad. Next um, question. Uh, what does the point of maintaining at what point does maintaining at what point does the cost of maintaining exceeding the cost of insurance? Uh, I don't I, again, I put insurance in this category of I don't know if these things are related for me. I think insurance is over here to satiate the needs of contracts. And I don't think it's necessarily factors into should we maintain this piece of software? Uh, and if we yeah. lost it, it's like this comparison. 
insurance is just a risk mitigation tool, right? Like that, I don't think that really goes into, yeah, you're going to factor the cost of insurance into the whole package of I'm going to buy these X amount of racks and I'm going to insure those things. So it goes into the total cost of ownership thing. But the idea that the cost of insurance will exceed the cost of maintaining it, that, that I don't think that that's realistic. Not until you're, you know, not until you're a hyperscaler type level well, of racks. The other piece I would mention too is I think often we look at what's the cost of insurance. Uh, yeah, hold on. What's we look at insurance as this ability to uh, mitigate. You use the you use the word uh, risk mitigation, and that term and big enterprise, it's not mitigation. It's risk management. Is yeah. we have risk, and there's risk. There's no way we can avoid like. Like a pandemic hitting. No one had that on their disaster recovery plan. Like that will be the textbook example that no one had that. But is it's just risk management. Okay, like well, we always that, oh, have risk. How so I want to be clear that? about something. Mitigate means to make something less severe, serious, or painful. It's not getting rid of the thing. It's just making the inevitable breakage of that thing less painful, right? <laughs> I, I am repeating, and in that case, I am repeating what I was told by CISO's World Round, which is we don't manage risk. We mitigate, or we, we don't mitigate risk. We manage risk. Yeah, that's, it's the so, same thing. It's just it's like, ugh, whatever. I'm going to do, do that next time. I'm going to say you're being pedantic. All right. Being pedantic. What's interesting is this may be irrelevant. How do you guys feel about chat GPG? You know what? I'm going to I'm going to tie this into the next item on agenda because I actually think chat G, GPT is interesting. And I say this because I've only played around with it a few times. Have you had a chance to play around with it at all? I haven't played it. I honestly haven't played with most of the AI things. We did the the picture one. Um, mm -hmm. and I'll just say my, my, my opinion on this real quick, and then I'll let you go off, which is, uh, I think it is the next evolution of memes, which I think is great. <laughs> I think we've had so many, sorry. Oh, I love being sick. We've had so many interesting AI advancements. We've had like text to description, like I can give it a prompt and then it can give me like an article written on this. There has been ramifications beyond this, which I think are interesting. And then there's text to images. And then there's like other ones, which I didn't even hear about till recently, like text to music where you can give it, I want, this is the type of song I want. And it will go off and generate that. I find that like, there's so many cool explosions of things. I think with the chat one, I find it, there is very good reasons for some of this. I think there's whole products that will be built around it. Like one of the funny ones I saw was people using it to negotiate lower rates with their ISP where they legitimately like, here's my ISP. Here's my account info, go negotiate. And it just goes on chat support and chats with them. Like, I think there's things like that when it comes to security, the, the, the thing I think is going to be awesome. So there's a platform I'm building called YASP, which is yet another security platform or yet another side project, which I am. I, what, one of the problems that I wanted to solve at our organization is templating. So we do have so many vulnerabilities. We find the same vulnerabilities all the time. I want to have good templates. And now we maintain templates in like a Word doc or old reports. If you use old reports, there's always the risk of copying client data from one into a client data uh, into that another client's report. So we don't do that. So we make generic ones and put it in Word documents. But Word is like miserable when you have 2,000 vulnerabilities you want to maintain. Yeah. So I want to make general descriptions. 
And here's the thing is I love, I love my, my, my hacker family, as Gator would say, I love this, them, but most of them are horrible writers because they all use police speak. And I know that's such a general generality, but we all know police speak when he heard it. And it's very difficult. That and passive voice happens all the time in reports. We say in what eight sentences, what could be said in one sentence is we do police speak and police speak is like, instead of just saying the woman walked across the road, it would be like the female homo sapien traversed the pathway across the particular transport. And just like this, we make it sound so much more complicated within chat GPT. I can make a general description of like, what is cross-site scripting? What is SQL injection? Give me an example. And it can give me, and I can even prompt it as say, in layman's terms. And if I do that, I get this amazing description it put together that any person can understand. So I think there is going to be ramifications. And I think like in our industry, not as like, give me eternal blue exploit or something like that, or like find the exploit of this. I think it's going to create loads of great content, but I think we're going to be inundated with so much content. It's going to be hard to know like good content from bad. And then you're going to, we're all, I think it will push us back to places like Reddit. It will push us back to IRC because there's so much content to describe these things that you're going to have to talk to a real person say, okay, how does this actually work? Um, yeah. So, so the, the, the thing that I would say is that, you know, it's been a meme on, uh, was it like programmer humor on Reddit for the past couple of weeks talking about how like, oh, they're, they're finally coming for us. It can write code. And it's just like, yeah, but who's going to trust the code that it writes to just do the thing that you request. And also cool. like, think of, think about it. Like if you get anything beyond a trivial little snippet of code, you have to validate that it's actually doing that thing. In which case you run into the make me a peanut butter sandwich problem where <laughs> you really like, I, in order to validate, it hasn't put the peanut butter on the outside of the bread. You have to be able to read the code and validate it. Right. Which in but some senses is easier than, knowing how to write a certain chunk of code, but still. I, it could be interesting though, because one of the things that we always like, we always suggest, but no one ever does is test driven development. I'm going to go build the test, which is this is what I want to eventually be able to do. And then I'm going to go program to satiate my test cases with security. I often do it like this. If they give us into their Azure, if they give us Azure DevOps access or whatnot, and we find a vulnerability, I write a test to detect that vulnerability so they know when it goes away. It's not going to be perfect, but I could see building, writing all the test cases and then have it go, give me a piece of code that does these things. But uh, at the same time, I can see it. I can see it butchering so, that. So I'll, in the same realm of AI, I just learned about something yesterday uh, from somebody and I, I want to share this. So if you could share my screen, there's a service and... This is one of those like, should we really be doing this type situation? Service called Otter AI, which I don't know. I presume it's a transcription service. So I mm -hmm. presume they're using AI to do this, but you can record meetings and it will do the transcription for you. And that obviously requires you to upload the meeting to a centralized service. And then your transcripts are also on the centralized service. I've learned that 
most reporters in DC utilize this when having meetings with lawmakers of every party, right? So there's just a treasure trove of information on Otter servers in regards to these meetings and transcription services. This these are examples of I have now created cloud storage services with AI and I have the ju I, I would call it one of probably the one of the juiciest targets that I can think of in terms of uh, a, a hacker that's you know politically motivated. Is this a mistake? A lot of those services hold that stuff in memory, process it, and then drop it because they don't want to keep keep it. The transcriptions will be there in the cloud storage. The this is like I'm I'm struggling this right now so, with my. Tool. So let me let me let me let me ask the appointed question though. Is yes. It, you upload it, it gives you the transcription, and the transcription comes back. How much validation is going into re-watching that or listening to that meeting and validating that the transcription is correct, as I opposed would, to just going off of whatever Otter says it was? I would say the transcription services with AI right now for, for vo voice to text work very, very well. I would actually yeah. say 99.9% .9 of the time. The problem there, though, is context is still lost. Like just recently, think about the most easy one. iPhones now have a huge upgrade on their, their and this isn't even AI. Like, I guess it kind of is, but like where I can ask a question and then it puts a question mark at the end where originally I'd have to say like blah, 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 question mark. As opposed, and, it would have, and that can that can make a like, huge difference yeah. between making a statement so, and asking a question. With the transcription services, that would be my bigger concern is that context and humor and jokes and any of these things can are completely lost on them. Uh, spinning back to code really quick, have you tried Copilot, which is the the one which no. actually like codes for you? I, I tried it and I'm using it and it it solves in it. I would say this. It doesn't solve major problems. It saves me the time of going to Stack Overflow and copying and pasting that code and then debugging that code. So to just like double down on something you said is like, I would I would never trust that code, but it saves you the time, the 20 minutes of finding the Stack Overflow code that aligns with what you're looking for, which does save time, just terrifying nonetheless. Not to not to be like, hey, look at me, uh, you know, and make a flex and be like, I'm the Giga Chad, uh, you know, coder. But it's like, the the type of code I tend to write tends to be, with the exception of like iterating through a piece of data, like writing a for loop. I'm not, I'm not going to Stack Overflow very often uh, these days. And if mm -hmm. I am, it's it's so I can find an example of how to use a kernel feature that no one on earth has used. Yeah. <laughs> Like I'm, I'm digging through to figure out like which of these flag combinations is incorrect, and I'm finding myself no longer going to Stack Overflow as opposed to just opening the Linux kernel code and figuring out what it actually wants on the other side of the kernel. Like, um, so I, I, yeah, I haven't really utilized uh, uh, auto what is it, autopilot or whatever it is because uh, the work I tends to I tend to do yeah. is outside. At the realm of usefulness. I can definitely see how, for example, if I was writing a, a simple web service, for example, in Python, you know, using Django or any of those, those frameworks of JavaScript or whatever, how it would be incredibly useful just because of how much 
code availability is out there on GitHub and Stack Overflow to to work off of. There's enough to train the model on that. Those things. It also trains off your existing code. I found that really interesting. Where it was like, oh, I started typing a function, or I started. That's terrifying. It. It's like, here, here's other code that you've already written that matches with what you're trying to do. I find it like Which, probably the most. Okay, hold on. I you know what's really funny though It's just like if oh it's trading off of code that you've already written. It's it's like encouraging the boilerplate problem then because it's like oh i don't have to functionize anything autopilot will just auto fill in all of these snippets and i'm never gonna have to generalize any of my that's like anti-software engineering yeah manifest I, it's crazy with so many of them too i'm noticing this is that it's not like like rust any of these things these solutions it's like great we have now solved the problem but now we have all these other problems which like are <laughs> unique to it and I use the example of like someone had, I think someone in chat said something like, oh, I write, it now writes my pen test reports. Like, yeah, sure. It will write what the finding is, but not the steps to reproduce it. But with so many of these things, I'm noticing that like example, like there was the, the student who was caught writing their thesis using AI. The reason they got caught wasn't because it wasn't a good paper. They got caught for two reasons. One, because they didn't actually read their own paper, so they couldn't actually defend it, which is amazing to me. The other one is it you're going to see like teachers adopting to say, I don't need you to regurgitate history to me. I need your opinion to show me that you yeah. understand it. But even then, you can kind of reduplicate that. So I, I want to I wanna talk shit about rest for a second. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm sharing a, a screen you should share. It. All right. So I tried to learn Rust a, a little while back and I just don't have enough time for side projects recently. So, and I don't have a, a use for Rust in my current day job, but I found it really funny that I found this book and it's on the Rust unofficial github.io and it's learn Rust with entirely too many linked lists. And the point of this book, it's an actual book. It's long. It's very, very, very long. It is that you're really not supposed to use linked lists in Rust. That's like a no-no. That's a huge no-no, right? And the reason for that is because linked lists are, are inherently um, unsafe uh, because you're doing pointer manipulation. Here's, here's what I want to point out, though, in this note right at the beginning. Oh, uh, no, come back. The, no, the current edition of this book is written against Rust 2018, which was the first release with Rust C 1.31. If your Rust toolchain is new enough, uh, the cargo file should create and contain this edition 2018. Or if you're reading this in the far future, perhaps some even larger number. Using an older toolchain is possible, but unlocks a secret hard mode where you get extra compiler errors that go completely unmentioned in the text of this book. Wow, sounds fun. <laughs> but the entire point of this book is actually to point out like just how esoteric and painful rust can be when you're trying to do what most would consider basic basic computer science fundamentals like linked lists and so like as you said you solve this whole class of problems but you just screwed up the entire environment based on how we've taught people to write code i love it so i'm going to bring us back i i had originally talked about copilot and talked about some of those but I, I have a question is more and more vulnerabilities are happening. And ultimately those things can, whether you're using third party services like translation, whether you're, you know, in your, 
we made the decision we're going to use third-party translation services and, and, and do those captions. When they get hacked, inevitably, LastPass was hacked. Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like every time LastPass gets hacked, I add another character to my passwords, and now they're at, like, 50 characters. Like, I, I don't know why. Between LinkedIn and LastPass, I feel like they're in the news all the time. But say this third party gets breached. Who is responsible? Who? Because, like, let's use the, let's use the government one. You have these, at one point, these conversations <clears throat> are privileged, and even if this this third party has SOC 2, SOC 3, every security under the sun, if they screw something up because they didn't patch a software, who is responsible? Because we have another article in the news, which is kind of kind of terrifying, I guess, which is this one. Yeah, so government workers facing seven years in prison for not updating software. Just to, you know, allay everyone's fears, this is not the United States. If I remember correctly, this is, uh, where is I believe this? it was Albania. Albania. Yeah, Albania. Five government IT officials were placed under house arrest, and I think two of them are, are facing actual prosecution for failing to patch, do regular security updates for, like, like five years or seven years or something like that. Maybe it was over a decade. Um, yeah, sorry, doing a quick rescan of this. Uh, yeah, yeah, they failed. They failed to patch services for like a decade or something like this, and that's that was considered abusive post in 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 military terms. We would we would call it like abandoning your post or something like that. In which case, you would totally face UCMJ or court martial or something like that. Um, but these are not, you know, uh, dereliction of duty would be the, the term. Um, mm. Should, in the public private sector, you would be facing termination. And I suppose a company could come after you for damages if what you did rose to gross negligence. Now, the question is, should government workers face dereliction of duty charges and prison time for failing to update services in the forget government worker or in, I want to, I want to think about that question. The other one is, is what about let's use that transcription service is if they have privileged confidential data, should they be held accountable for the data in there? Because they, you know, in their, their, their contract that you sign the terms of service, you check mark, they're going to say, we're not responsible for anything because every one of them pretty much says we're not responsible for anything to yeah. do with your data. Like in using our service, you're taking on the risk. Part of me goes, it is a remark again, not us. This is Albania. Like it, a part of me thinks like this is terrifying. Like this is terrifying for, and it's a slippery slope. The moment you would open up this, we have like, and this is where I, my mind goes like we have other occupations in which you do have, you are open yourself up to malpractice or felonies. Like as a doctor, if you negligently, if you, if you were, if you have if you do something negligent and cost someone their life and it's proven that you were negligent purposefully, you can be legally liable for that person's life. So is this that much different? Like, even though it's deals with technology, is it that much different? 
Um, so I'll say that this is probably the first time we've seen explicit. Like, I, I'm pretty sure that people have been fired in the past for failing to do their job in updating services and just being bad at being a CISO or whatever. That's probably happened, right? This is the first time we've seen a government actually prosecute people for what I would call dereliction of duty uh, outside the space of probably military operations, in which case, like, there's a clear law on the books about dereliction of duty. I would imagine that we already have laws on the book that could, in the United States, that could be utilized to prosecute somebody in this fashion in the US. And I'm gonna go on record and say, I don't think it's entirely unreasonable. The question is, at what point does it become unreasonable? So if someone doesn't update services for six months because they boneheaded a couple of lines and it wasn't automatically updating and they never went back to validate that it was updating, I think that's a boo-boo. If no one looks at a service for 10 years because the, the one guy gets fired, the one guy that was doing it got fired and institutional lo uh, knowledge was lost, does that mean that the person who took over that person's job it was negligent and should be prosecuted, right? There's lots of gray area, no matter what the time frame in which you could say, I think it's unreasonable to prosecute somebody for that. Now, in the case of somebody was going full Milton or like someone got Milton's and they were like, screw it, I'm just going to collect a paycheck and let the, let the building burn down, right? Or set fire to the building, right? But if someone was doing intentional lack of their job and just collecting a paycheck i do think the existing laws on the book for government workers would enable the government to not just sue them for damages but also to to potentially prosecute them uh uh for for actual legal uh, there's definitely laws that exist already which are uh, held like for instance certain types of data if they're leaked you have to provide identity protection to your to your users like I've had and it's sad because I think I have had like 16 of these in my like some stupid amount of number where I've gotten a letter in the mail saying hey your data was taken we're offering this free identity protection for 12 months where it's like a thank you because now that they've stolen my social security number like I only have to worry about it for 12 months thank you for that yeah. or like I was involved in the OPM breach so like that my 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 clearance data is out there for anyone to have like all of those things, like there's legal ramifications, but they tend to be money wise. They're not criminal charges or civil charges. I think the question is, is whether or not these should be criminal charges because you start opening up little things like this. And this is a whole conversation of itself. What about medical devices? If you shipped a medical device, which solves a problem with a known vulnerability in it, are you negligent if it's exploited? The, uh, if you knew about it, yeah, probably you could. <laughs> what, I think the law. What if you're, this is the thing is, I think the existing laws in the books kind of already cover that under uh, mm -hmm. gross negligent manslaughter. But and let's say like that. in that same thing, though, let's take, you know what? I don't know about it because we didn't do any security testing on it. So, you know, like I, I don't I don't want to hear about any security vulnerabilities with it. We just want to ship it. Oh, you found security. Don't send me an email. Don't talk to me about it. I don't want to know. 
you don't know so about I it. would say that by nature the fact that we live in an oligarchy and CEOs are not going to prison for for willfully doing these things and instead they allow companies to go bankrupt or simply pay slap on the wrist fines uh presently speaking no no one gets held <laughs> responsible for that stuff uh because that's the system we live in no one wants no one wants to open that pandora's box even though we probably should right mm. And I, that's, I think that's like, what I'll say. This is where it starts coming down to. It would be a remarkable amount of nuance to figure out. Like, and this is why my heart kind like not knowing anything about them. My heart kind of goes out to the, these people, not knowing again, not knowing about them, not knowing negligence or anything like that is because as someone who's like patching services, you're constantly doing that ba balance of like, or I mean, I never had to do this balance, but I'm guessing Gator has many stories on this. It's like, if I patch this service, it risks it going down, but it's working. So yeah. it's it's been the system in the closet that has worked forever. I'm not patching it because if I do, it's going to go down, and then my, then I'm going to get fired because if it goes down. If I don't patch yeah. it, I'm going to get arrested. So all of a sudden, now there's this whistleblower problem, which like it is a very hard problem. And I I do think I lean. I didn't think I would lean here, but I do think it it does make sense that you could be held responsible for negligence, assuming there's clear lines of communication. There's one more article, which was a fascinating one, which I didn't actually see. Gowry saw, and then we'll, then we'll look at closing this up. So lawmakers unveil a bipartisan bill aiming to ban TikTok. And, and it doesn't ban TikTok in particular. The actual language of the bill bans... I don't I haven't read the actual language, but the summary is basically that like social media websites with major foreign interests in in that. So TikTok is ByteDance. ByteDance has uh, an arm, you know, is a Chinese company, more or less. And if you understand anything about China, you know that the party in China, if you will, has to have a seat at the table for every corporation. So there's no such thing as a private non uh, government or uh, company in China. They all have members of the quote unquote, the party, the party. as part of their board, right? Um, however, this bill technically is not limited to just TikTok. Um, for example, Twitter's second largest investor, even after going closed, is uh, the prince in Saudi Arabia. And so it opens up the question of how bad and how many services would this technically ban under the the language? And I'll give you one more example of service. Anyone remember LiveJournal? Yeah. Oh yeah, I remember that. LiveJournal. LiveJournal is owned by the Russians. Uh, really? Not the public state, but it is owned by a Russian company. Yeah. And so uh, this. Gator asked, "What bill, is the bill? Is, is what the bill? Is what the bill is strongly suggesting?" I'm not sure what the comment. Oh, ban TikTok in the government. Oh, banning TikTok on government devices with the bill, a bill is strongly suggesting. Uh, it's not just government devices. It's uh, uh, a new bill uh, from a bipartisan group of lawmakers, if passed, would ban TikTok in the U.S. after mm -hmm. years of broad concern. Yeah, TikTok's already banned on government devices, just to be clear. Um, that, mm -hmm. that's, that's something that the, uh, the executive branch can do. But this is trying to ban TikTok as a whole from operating in the U.S. And uh, 
Yeah. Uh, and, and then markets moved because Meta and, and Snapchat went up. <laughs> I, uh, I, result. I will be amazed if it happens. I mean, actually, this is probably a whole discussion in of itself. And maybe we kick this hornet's nest right now with the plan to cover this later. Because I do think there's a whole discussion around whether or not, personally, if you believe this should happen, and again, I hate using the word should, but I find myself using it a lot. It's a dirty word. But whether or not this should be allowed to happen and whether the government should get involved in banning, we'll say emerging technologies, even though I don't know if TikTok would really sit there. But I don't know, man. TikTok's pretty scary. Like... It is an aggregate of U.S. user data in a place that, according to ByteDance, is outside the reach of the CCP, but is, I mean, from connections that work there, I will say I, I have heard things that concern me in the behavior of the way they wall off uh, the two sides of the company. And that is as much as I will say. Hmm. With that... I don't know what the closing thought is, but I think looking at these articles, I think we can both agree. Yes, everything is broken. And with everything broken, you might get arrested over. No, I'm just kidding. There, with everything being broken, there's connections to now. Like I think it feels like everything's coming to a head. You have vulnerabilities coming out frequently. You have people being held responsible for them, which are not high level in the company. These are the IT workers. Again, not in the U.S., and then we have the government saying, oh, we, well, we can fix this by banning pieces. Again, not sure if these all work together, but it is fascinating. Gallery, what is your thought? You know what my thoughts are. You want to say it? You want to say, you want to say my line? I do want to hear it. You want to, do you want to say it? I don't want to say it. I want to hear you say it. Well, delete computers, return to monkey. Everything's always, always been this broken. As always... Thank you for watching. Have a very, very Merry Christmas, a happy holidays. Enjoy the snow or the sand wherever you are. And as always, hack on.